The talk you're about to listen to is given by Tom Gilson at Seaford Baptist Church, Seaford, Virginia, on July 12, 2009. Some material was edited out, mostly to remove group discussion, which was unfortunately not audible on the recording. The first voice you will hear is that of biologist P.Z. Myers, a uh, faculty member at the University of Minnesota, Morris, speaking on a podcast titled Reasonable Doubts. If you're going to cultivate a scientific mindset, you're going to find that that mindset is in opposition to religion, necessarily in opposition, opposition to religion. And, and you know, just, just looking at religion in general, religious people believe the most ridiculous things. That's just an introduction. This is going to be a three-part series, and next week we have David Heddle coming. He is one of the best writers on science and religion that there is on the Internet. He's an author. He's written a novel. He's a physicist at JLab and at CNU, and he will be someone that you'll want to hear. The following week, uh, Carla Briscoe from our own church. She teaches biology at Thomas Nelson Community College. will be talking. And what they're going to be doing is they're going to be presenting as scientists. David is a physicist. She teaches, Carla teaches biology. And they're going to be presenting um, the, some of the science relating to the origin of the universe, the origin of life. What I'm doing here is not talking as a scientist, because I'm not a scientist, but I am someone who has done considerable study and writing and publishing on how uh, science and religion how people think about science and religion and the way they relate to each other and things like like um, what you just heard from P.Z. Myers. P.Z. Myers is the one who said it's like whack-a-mole. He is a very prominent blogger and speaker in, uh, in the area of science and religion. The, um, pardon me? P.Z. Myers has never gotten on my blog. I blog on this. I debate on it. And so I'm, I'm involved in these kinds of questions very frequently. So, again, the question is, why does this matter? This was just June 26. Wall Street Journal, Lawrence Krauss, a uh, cosmologist. God and science don't mix. A scientist can be a believer, but professionally, at least, he can't act like one. What do you think? Does, does it make a difference how we think about science and religion? Is, you're here for some reason. What, what, what's the importance of this question, the way science and religion connect with each other? My going in position on all of that is science done correctly and the word of God interpreted correctly cannot be in conflict with one another. Right. If there's a conflict, man has either screwed up one or the other. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that's right. Agree with that. Yeah, Charlie. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's exactly right. I had an experience that I still remember very vividly as a freshman in a philosophy class where I said something about science and religion. And the professor came up to me. I'm going to do this to my daughter because I can do it as a dad. And for 10 minutes, he said, you are wrong, you are wrong. Let me explain how you're wrong. You are really wrong. And it, it may not have been 10 minutes, but it doesn't take very much of that for you to really get 
seriously intimidated. I didn't ask any more questions the whole semester. But he was wrong, by the way. And, and well, he explained why he thought, yes, he, he did explain why, he, why I was wrong. He said, I, I don't remember the details. I just remember the impression. And actually, it was on a topic that we're going to get to later on here today. And he was wrong. He was, he was just wrong. But I, as a freshman in college, wasn't about to, I didn't know enough at that point. It's just something I had heard about and didn't know. Other thoughts? Why does this make a difference? Okay. Right. Yeah, if, if science doesn't cover a whole lot of knowledge, like values. That's really the essence of it, because there, there really can't be any an incompatibility between the two, because they're, they're apples and oranges. They're, they're two focus, the focus are two different things. Not only do they not conflict if, if both are done correctly, but they're not even attempting to answer the same question quite often. You know, sometimes they are asking, some, answering the same question. Sometimes they are answering it, but but they're I, science is very. I see that as it should be. Science should be in some ways agnostic about its approach. Mm -hmm. um, and I have faith that, even, that again, science, which is agnostic about its approach, is still going to bear out the word of God. Mm -hmm. But to say science and religion is incompatible is uh, you'd also have to, the, the, the counterpart of that is science and anti-religion is also incompatible. Yeah. And that's, that's I think, the convenient point that people overlook when they... They do overlook they that, yes. That. You, if you're going to be, the best you could be is agnostic in that case. Because mm -hmm. if you're against religion with your science, you've already tainted your data. Sure. To begin with. Right. If you just go on caring about whether or not there's a God, like a lot of the people that are still really, I that I, I'm thinking it's true, are often atheists. They just don't want to believe it's possible to have. Right. Unless they're that. That would be Richard Dawkins. That would be Richard Dawkins, yeah. yes. <laughs> but I think yes. it also goes in the fact that we looked R all the way back from Darwin to all the evolution, came up with a theory. And their life's work was based on the theory. So they're not going to stand up, even though the evidence proves them wrong. They're not going to stand up in their scientific say, oh, no, wait a minute. I'm going to read Oh, sure. Because that would bring discredit to their theories die hard. At, at first, yeah. and then they would, everything that they've done would be called. Right. So, you know, they're not going to stand up and say they're wrong. It's part of it. Because science right now, is proving the existence of a supreme being. There's a uh, very famous book written about 40, 45 years ago by Thomas Kuhn called The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, and he basically says what you just said, that, that for people to change their mind, it's, it's almost easier, I'm really badly compressing this, but it's almost easier for that generation to die off than it is for them to change their mind. Uh, the, the big example of that is plate tectonics, where you know that they say now that that the continents are all moving, and as they grind against each other, that's what causes earthquakes and volcanoes and the sort. That was when it was first proposed was an absolutely idiotic, stupid, revolutionary, unbelievable theory, 
But when the generation of people that said that kind of went away, the whole world accepted that it was actually true. And that's, that's the theory, reigning theory now. Were you going to say something, Charlie? Okay. To me, the, the, the question is this, is that science has got all this incredible authority because it is so incredibly successful. We've got people on the moon. We've got medical advances. We've got computers. We've got all this. We've got dentistry. We've got all this incredible stuff. And we've got science with all this incredible authority. And it's like it's religion against science. And if it's religion against science, who's going to win? Science is, is this powerful juggernaut of an of a enterprise that when it speaks, people listen. And religion is, keeps getting kind of shoved off to the uh, ever smaller corner as science supposedly disproves religion. And because of that, and, and you've got science presenting itself as fact and knowledge, and religion is just belief. It's just what you believe. It's, and some people say faith is believing what you know isn't true. Well, or else you, that's the, I'd state of the extreme form of it. There's also the other side, which is faith is believing what you don't have any good reason to think is true. That's just a wrong view of faith. Faith that we have in, in God through Jesus Christ is based on knowledge of God through the word of God, confirmed by history, confirmed by personal experience, confirmed by the Holy Spirit, and it's actually knowledge. So we've got knowledge of science against knowledge of religion. And if they conflict, it's a big problem. But they don't conflict as much as some people say they do. Lawrence Krauss said that science is in conflict with religion. There's, there's, he, in this article that, that was on the Wall Street Journal, he quoted from J.B.S. Haldane, who is a geneticist, a population biologist uh, in the basically 20, early 20th century, and he said, when I set up an experiment, I assume that no god, angel, or devil is going to interfere with its course. Basically, God, keep your hands off. And Krauss went on to say, God is of necessity irrelevant in science. And his point there basically was that if God is going to get involved in any of our experience, experiments, then their experiments are out the window because we can't trust their outcomes. Another one, Robert Pennock. This one really hurts because I'm a graduate of Michigan State University. And Robert Pennock is a philosopher of science there. He's been very prominent in the intelligent design debates lately. And he said, without uninterruptible natural law, there would be absolute chaos in a scientific worldview. And what he's saying by uninterruptible natural law, again, is, God, you keep your hands off because if you get involved, we ain't going to have any more science. We'll just have chaos. And so we've got these people... Again, saying that you can't have science and religion at the same time. Well, what I want to do with this is back up a few centuries and talk about how we got to where we are and then talk about the, the specific things that these people said a little bit later on. And we're going to begin with talking about some myths. After we do that, we'll talk about some historical myths and we're going to talk about some surprising, surprising things that you may not have known about the history of science and religion and the importance of Christianity to science. And then we're going to talk about why Krauss and Mon uh, Pennock and these guys were just plain wrong about that thing, if we have time. And if we get into too much conversation, we won't get that far, and that's okay. How many of us know that 
in the Middle Ages, they believed in a flat earth. Yeah. Well, okay. The, uh, in the Middle Ages, right. And why did people say that Columbus shouldn't try to travel west the way he did, looking for? Yeah. And what was going to happen to Columbus? He was going to fall off the edge of the earth and die. I like this picture here because you got the sad sun and the happy sun. But this whole flat earth thing is, is a good picture of how the relationship between science and Christianity has played out over the ages. Because, of course, the whole flat earth thing came up because, and the reason that it's important is because the Bible teaches that the earth is flat, supposedly. And these non-scientific, anti-scientific, ignorant middle-agers thought the earth was flat. And, in fact, it's just, it just represents a whole lot of things that they did in the Middle Ages to just hold back science, just to squash it, to hold it down. We'll talk about a couple more in a little bit later. The sad thing about this is that nothing, none of it is true. None of it is true. In the Middle Ages, they knew the earth was round. They knew the earth was round. They knew how big it was. In fact, a guy by the name of Eratosthenes had to practice that. Eratosthenes figured out before Christ how big the earth was. He did it by measuring the, the, the angles of shadows at different places at different times of days. And there was a, the most popular astronomy textbook in the Middle Ages was called Sphere. And it included the earth as sphere. And it taught that the earth was round. And four of the most prominent uh, people who now have been called saints by the Catholic Church taught that the earth was round. One of them was Thomas Aquinas, probably the most important theologian in the history of Catholicism, actually one of the most important theologians in the history of Christianity, period. And he taught the earth was round. So why do we get this deal that we're all taught in school that the Middle Ages thought the, the people in the Middle Ages, I'm a Middle Ager, um, thought the earth was round. Where did that come from? A long time after Columbus. Washington Irving, 1783 to 1859. You know, do you know anything else that Washington Irving wrote? Legend of Sleepy Hollow, Rip Van Winkle. Legend of Sleepy Hollow was about a headless horseman. Rip Van Winkle is about a guy who fell asleep for an afternoon nap and didn't wake up until 20 years later and how, how, what it was like, so on. Washington Irving didn't write everything to be believed. It wasn't all true. Well, he wrote this multi-volume history of the life and voyages of Christopher Columbus. I wish we could see it better, but I don't want to keep turning the lights on and off. Anyway, the, he wrote this multi-volume, uh, and... And, and this was 1828, 1829 that this was published, and that is the first time in history that anybody said that the people in the Middle Ages believed the earth was flat. And he's the one who made up the story that Columbus had this conflict over sailing west because they said he was going to fall off the edge of the earth. He was the first one who said that. This is 336 years after Columbus sailed. It would be like us, some author, writing a, a book today saying that, I've got to come up with something appropriately outrageous. 
George Washington believed, everybody before George Washington, every colonial American believed that they were all descended from the Indians. Now, if somebody publishes a book, and it shows up in Barnes & Noble next week, and a hundred years from now, everybody's convinced that that's right, and convinced that back in the colonial period, everybody thought they were descended from the Indians. Now, that's just outlandish, but that's what happened, except there's a little more to the story. But to get the, you get the, if you had asked George Washington, who lived before Irving wrote, if you had asked Thomas Jefferson or Ben Franklin, some of these scientific guys at the time, did, uh, did anybody in the Middle Ages think the earth was flat? They would have said, no. This was never thought of until 1828. And, and, and so the question that should be running through your mind is this. Why do we believe what Washington Irving said about it? There's a point where the story gets even more interesting. It goes forward just a few decades to a man by the name of Andrew Dixon White. Andrew Dixon White was, you can see a little better his picture that way. Andrew Dixon White was, along with Ezra Cornell, founded Cornell University in Ithaca, New York, 1865. Cornell University was the first uh, secular university in all of the United States. It was the very first secular university. I'm going to see if I can come up with a, uh, with a quote from uh, what was said at the time. Um, White was the first president, and he ran into some considerable opposition from Christians at the time. Because you can imagine, it's the first time anybody's ever thought of doing a building a university that, had not, didn't, that wasn't for the purpose of training Christian leaders. This is a very revolutionary thing. The name of the book, yeah, I was going to come back to that. It's a history of the warfare of science with theology and Christendom. And I'll, I'll, I will spend some more talking about that. White was a 37-year-old Episcopal-bred historian who had taught at the University of Michigan. As a Michigan State person, I'm okay with this guy going to the other school and making this mistake. He served in the New York State Senate before becoming the first president of Cornell University at the age of 33. Young guy. His refusal as president to impose any religious tests on students and faculty and his declared intention of creating in Ithaca, quote, an asylum for science where truth shall be sought for truth's sake, not stretched or cut exactly to fit revealed religion. In other words, it's science against religion. This had aroused the enmity of pious New Yorkers who accused the young president and his school of religious indifference and infidelity. I'm quoting from a place, you can, you, I'll give you the source for this later on, a, uh, it's a, easily available on the web, a couple of uh, his secular historians from the University of Wisconsin who have written about this. There was conflict there, starting with seminars and lectures that White gave in the late 1860s and going on until he published this book in the, the very end of the 19th century. And what he said in this book was, Everybody in the Middle Ages thought the earth was flat. And this book reigned for decades. In fact, the author of this one said that he quoted from this book in his second published paper. I'll tell you more about this book later on. It's the best text of all on the kinds of things we're talking about here. He had 
a polemical, he had an axe to grind. He had a polemical purpose in this book, which was to show that science has always been under attack from religion and that religion has always been wrong. And the judgment of historians today is that Dixon White's book, A History of the Warfare of Science with Theology in Christendom, that it has had an incredibly powerful impact on the way we view religion and science today and that it is mostly fabrications, mostly false. That is documentable, and I'll, I'll steer you that direction. And he put a lot of footnotes in there. He's a historian. He made it look, uh, he made it look pretty believable, but he was just making stuff up. There, there's, there, there's names he, that he made up there about people getting burned at the stake, essentially, that never even existed as far as any other historians can figure out. I will steer you to the source on that, and you can, and you can look it up yourself. Now, there was another one by a, uh, a guy named William Draper with a similar name. wasn't quite as influential, but there was a lot of this going on. It was around the same time that Darwin published The Origin of Species. That was 1859, and there was a lot of ferment between science and religion. So let's just, uh, just, just by way of thinking about that, you're probably aware of other people in the Middle Ages who were persecuted uh, by the church for their scientific beliefs. Can you name any? Do you know Galileo. of any? Galileo would be one. You've probably heard about how he was imprisoned tortured, killed for supporting Copernicus. Some of it's sort of true, but you, you kind of almost get the sense that he was burned at the stake. But, but the truth is, he wasn't. None of that is exactly the way it has been presented to us. The fact with Galileo is that Galileo was standing against not the Bible, but against Aristotle and Ptolemy. I'm not going to go back into the whole story of Aristotle and Ptolemy, but basically they had the picture that everybody believed about the way the universe was formed, and the church bought into it. And so, because everybody did, that was just the reigning theory at the time, was that, that, was that the earth was the center of the universe, and everything else revolved around it, and it was all very complicated and so on. Well, Galileo wasn't standing against the church as much as he was against these non-biblical beliefs. So Galileo wasn't really against religion, but he did say some things that a lot of people didn't agree with. He said that he was going to agree with Copernicus that the sun was the center of the solar system, and, and he had a telescope showing that there were moons around Jupiter and that the, and that the moon, that our moon, wasn't perfectly round, and that all upset the old ways of looking at the world. And so the Catholic Church, of course, banned all his books and did all... No, they didn't. The Catholic Church had an index of banned books. The, most of the books on that list were pornography. Some of them were Protestantism. This was just uh, 60 years or so after the Council of Trent when, and, and all the furor about Protestants pulling away from Catholicism. And... And Galileo's books never got banned. They never got banned. So what happened? Well, they didn't like what he had to say. And, and there was a change of pope, and a guy by the name of Urban VIII became the pope, Pope Urban. And 
he said to Galileo, go ahead and publish. Feel free to publish. But I want you to consider this one set of possible explanations, so one set of facts as being what's, what's behind, uh, what's the proper explanation. And so, so uh, Galileo did that. He did exactly what the Pope wanted. But he took all of the Pope's ideas and put them in the mouth of a character in the dialogue whose name was Simplicio. Moron. And, and so Galileo did end up in house arrest. But he didn't get there for teaching that the sun was the center of the universe. He got there for being a real political idiot. You don't call the Pope Simplicio, especially when the Pope's under a lot of attack from this Protestant thing. There's this, this whole mythology that's grown up about how the Catholic Church, the, the Christians in the Middle Ages, were so anti-science. And look what they did to Galileo. Look what they did to Galileo. Isn't that awful? Well, it's, 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 it's Dixon White who has changed the story, and some other people have bought into it because they like the idea of making religion look like we're the bad guys. By the way, responsible historians of the Middle Ages today are saying that you can look at a whole lot of these stories of people who were persecuted for defying the church as scientists, and only one of them stands up with any portion of the truth, and that would be Galileo. He's the worst case example. The other one that comes up is Copernicus. You remember Copernicus um, did the deal where, um, where he put Sol, the sun, in the center of the solar system, and here we are, so on. And, and again, the story is that Copernicus was afraid to publish because, and he didn't publish until basically he was on his deathbed. And, and that um, he was afraid to publish because he knew he'd get persecuted by the church. You've heard of the Copernican Revolution? Does that name sound familiar? Copernican Revolution was supposedly the point where, where we were no longer the center of the universe, but we became a pale blue dot kind of in the middle of everywhere. And look how insignificant we are now. We were at the place of honor in the very heart of everything. And now we're just on one arm of a galaxy with an insignificant sun and an insignificant galaxy, one of hundreds of billions of galaxies. Two problems with that. One is that Copernicus actually wasn't the first person to suggest it. He was just the first person to put some mathematics behind it, and he was mostly wrong. It didn't get really solved until Kepler, who was a very strong Christian, came along. There's, so, so first of all, it wasn't so much a Copernican revolution. And the second thing was this idea that we got kicked out of the wonderful, beautiful, honor of place in the heart of everything. That, that isn't how they viewed it. The place of honor in those days was out in the heavens where God lived. The place at the very center of everything wasn't the surface of the earth, it was the middle of the earth, and guess what was there? That was hell. The closer you were to the center, the more you were in a place of dishonor. And people in the people writing after Copernicus said, He has freed us from this. And then this whole thing about there's so much mythology about how the Christians were opposed to being kicked out of the, the, the center of the universe because we got kicked out of the being in the apple of God's eye. That's not how they viewed it at all. That's been made up after the fact.
Oh, by the way, I forgot to mention, you know what the conflict that Columbus really had with people about, about traveling west to find Japan? He said it would be about a 2,500, 3,000-mile trip, and they knew he was wrong. Yeah. They knew he was wrong. He said he could get there with three ships and that much provision. They knew he couldn't. It, he was wrong. If, got he got lucky. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If he hadn't hit the Bahamas, or he would have hit something soon after, he was just wrong. Other other reactions, comments on this. We're actually getting to even more interesting part next, but yeah, we rewrite history. Yeah, right. How do we correct it? Homeschool, um, letters to the editor, blogging, um, showing up in your child's classroom and showing them some of the documentation that will be available. It's not Christian documentation. It's, it's, just, good, it's just good stuff. It's good history. They're taught, they're taught, you know, the filtering has already begun. You don't hear it, people of, of good conscience who just don't know better will tell you that, oh, well, Darwin, yeah, clearly he was throwing religion over the side. And they don't, you don't learn that Darwin is a little bit conflicted about some of his, what he was publishing. So, yep. you know, and that's, it's sort of the whole dumbing down of the individuals involved in science that is part and parcel there. They leave out some of these little refinements that might make people think twice, because it's, all, all scientific publishing is agenda-based. All scientists are biased. Now, their bias may be uh, some are biased against, some are biased for, some are biased towards the middle of the road, not enough of them. But, but the, the one thing people forget is scientists, at the end of the day, still you know put their pants on one leg at a time. They're still motivated by personal issues. And even though science itself can be objective. Scientists rarely are. Oh, that's right. Okay. What I want to talk about now is, is how bad Christianity was for science and how it interfered with the development and growth of science, which is something that I think a lot of us learn in school, is that it really got in the way of science. And one of those, one of those topics we've already talked about, the thing about Galileo and Copernicus getting horribly persecuted by the church is false. So, so in that sense, it's completely wrong. But there's another sense in which it's really amazingly wrong. Um, and let me just ask you, lead you to this, because you'll get there, I think, just by thinking through some questions here. Where and when did science first develop? Where did it first develop? Real, real science. Was it in, did it happen in China or Greece or the Arab world? Didn't happen in South America. Happened in Europe. Real science first developed in Europe. China had some technology. They had gunpowder. Greece had some good reasoning, but they never put it to any kind of empirical test. In fact, um, Aristotle taught that if you have two objects of different weight and you drop them the the uh, the heavy one 
will drop faster than the light one. And that's just not true. I mean, you could, you can, how long, it, the, people believe this for centuries. How long did it take to do that test? But, but in Greece, they thought, you know, any kind of physical work is kind of dishonorable. You have to do all your work mentally. And, and they really did have this sense. Aristotle wrote about this, that you, you shouldn't do experiments. It first developed in Europe, Christian Europe. Now, what do we do with that information? Let's think through something else here. And this is going to be one of these very, this is the most general sense you can think of, something that would be true for just about every scientist. When scientists do their work, what are they looking for? They're looking for truth, okay? What kind of truth? The truth, yeah. Something they can apply, right? Something that's repeatable, yeah. That's true, that's right. Observable. Mm -hmm. Measurable, yeah. Five scientific method, what else? Even more general than that, what? Proven, okay, so that means it's got to be universal, kind of a regular thing that's just the same, a law. Yeah, they're looking for laws. Or they're looking for regularities. They're looking for things that they can count on that are that make sense. They're looking for that. They're looking for explanations, looking for laws, looking for things that are regular that make sense. Now, this is even more general, and it's and, and the answer to this is going to be more obvious <coughs> than you think. What do scientists have to assume, given given this? Second question: What do scientists have to assume before they put a lot of time and energy look into looking for laws or explanations or those kinds of things. What do you have to assume before you're going to put your time into energy for looking for anything? That it exists. Yeah. They have to assume that there's such a thing as explanations in the universe. They have to assume that there's laws out there. Okay? Now, here's the hard part for us to wrap our minds around. Throughout most of human history, up until a few hundred years ago, and throughout most of the world, that sense of there being explanations, regularities, laws, a sensible universe did not exist. The idea, see this is very hard for us to figure out. Most of the world, for most of history, has not thought of the world as having being explainable the way we think it is in science. There was no sense that there were explanations out there. Now, we can't think of the world that way because we've been trained. We have got hundreds of years of science behind us, and we know from experience that science works, right? We know that science can come up with explanations. We know that science can produce laws, and that the laws are trustworthy, and that it makes sense. But we learned that, where did we learn it from? We learned it from science. Where did the first scientists get that idea from? They didn't know it from science. Where did they get it from? The idea that the universe makes sense and is explainable. From the Word of God. Now you're going to think, if you haven't heard this before, that that's kind of a self-serving Christian thing to say. That we got it from the Word of God. But China didn't have it. 
China through the millennia, according to Rodney Stark, who wrote this book that I'll be recommending to you, um, as conceived by Chinese philosophers, the universe simply is and always was. There is no reason to suppose that it functions according to rational laws or that it could be comprehended in physical terms rather than mystical terms. Consequently, through the millennia, Chinese intellectuals pursued enlightenment, not explanations. Because of the way they conceived of the world, the way they conceived of their gods, they never thought of looking for explanations. In Greece, which would be the other main candidate for being where science might have come from, but it didn't, Stark writes that there were three factors preventing the Greeks from achieving science. First, their conceptions of the gods were too inadequate, too small to imagine them to, per to, to permit them to imagine a conscious creator. They conceived of the universe as not just internal and uncreated, but locked into endless cycles of progress and decay. So where's science and progress going to come from? It's just going to be progress, decay, progress, decay. Aristotle said that the same ideas recur to men not once or twice, but over and over again. So basically everything that can be thought of already has been. Prompted by their religious conceptions, they transformed inanimate objects into living creatures capable of aims, emotions, and desires. They literally thought that, um, that's the third one there, they, they pretty much thought that the reason the, the planets moved in perfect circles and circles within circles and so on is because planets really love circles. They thought that when you drop your keys to the ground, which they didn't have keys, it's because keys really like being on the ground or as close to the ground as they can be. Now, it's impossible for us to even imagine thinking that way, isn't it? It's called gravity. It wasn't called gravity then. Might be called gravity now. It might have been called gravity in, this, in one sense, but gravity to them meant keys really like being close to the ground. And everything just is, does what it does because it likes to, to do it. With, with them. And that wasn't the, the way they explained everything, but it was enough of it that the, how are you going to come up with some kind of a scientific law out of that? Stark also, some of the, none of the numerous divinities in the Greek pantheon, the, the whole list of gods, in other words, was a suitable creator of a lawful universe, not even Zeus. Especially not Zeus. What they thought of as the gods were a bunch of people writ large who just kind of duked it out between themselves, and whatever happened was kind of the result of whatever happened in the heavens as they duked it out, and we did our little pitiful contribution to it all. And there wasn't any natural law in their mind. So why would they look for natural law? This is the conception that, you, that, you, that I think is, is really quite amazing, and yet there are lots of authors teaching on this now. Lots of authors supporting this. There's a, and, and the first one was a not known to be a Christian, a guy, a philosopher going back and a mathematician about 100 years ago named Alfred North Whitehead. And the basic deal is this. Without Christianity, science never would have been born. Now react to me on that. Does this make sense? Without Christianity, because of the answers to those questions we had last time, science never would have been born. It makes perfect sense if you know both. If you know both what? Science and Christianity. Okay. What is it about Christianity that makes it 
suitable to have been the, the source of sciences being born. Christianity says that things have an order and a reason and a purpose. Infused with order and purpose because God is what kind of a God? A God of order and of rationality. There's another thing that came out of Christianity that was, that was there in Judaism, but developed a lot more in Christianity. One of the things that's true for both Judaism and Christianity is that you've got God and you've got creation, and they're not the same thing. So you don't have a spirit in every rock and tree that, that animates it. And so you've got a distinction there where, where it can't just kind of flow out, fly off into chaos because of, like we had a quote earlier on, that you have to assume that no god, angel, or devil is going to interfere with your experiments. Well, we don't have rocks, and we don't have spirits in every rock and tree in Christianity. And Judaism saw it the same way. Also, but even more so in Christianity, you have the sense that even though you've got a distinction between God and creation, creation is still, what did he pronounce it in Genesis? Good. And the heavens declare the glory of God. There's something good about God's creation. A lot of the Greeks viewed the creation, uh, and a lot of other people too, as either in the East they viewed it as illusion. In Greece, sometimes they viewed it as being the nasty stuff. Uh huh. And so you had you had a kind of a, a, a kind of a god in Plato who, who who did it. His job was to take this nasty stuff and put some order on it, and he just couldn't quite do it. He did did his best, but in Christianity, it's not nasty stuff. God pronounced it good. And, and especially in Christianity compared to Judaism, God himself entered into it, gave an incredible value. When Christ was resurrected, he was resurrected in a physical body. And it was a different kind of a physical body because he could appear from nowhere through walls and so on. It was a glorified body, but it was still, he ate. People touched him. You know, he could make breakfast and eat it. And, and plus, too, there's, I don't want to say that Christianity was the whole and only unique thing that made science happen. There's a difference between being necessary and being sufficient. Sufficient means that if you've got these conditions in place, if you've got all the right things in place, it's going to happen. And Christianity by itself is not sufficient to create science. It took the language of mathematics, a lot of which came from the Muslims, the Arab world. It took some of the stuff that the Greek philosophers did in terms of reasoning and so on. It took all those three things put together. But without the mindset that the universe is worth studying because it's created by God, created good, and the heavens reveal the glory of God, without that mindset, Christian, uh, science didn't happen anywhere. Without the mindset that the universe is rational, knowable, sensible, explainable. Science just didn't happen anywhere, and it's because it didn't have this sense. So how much does Christianity hold back science? Back in the 12th century, this cathedral in France, Chartres, high spires, you know, an incredibly beautiful thing in there. It looks just so religious, doesn't it? It just looks like the place where religious things would happen. It was in the 12th century, 
a school, a chart, where historians now say the whole scientific frame of mind was not so much developed there, but the groundwork was laid for it, where they, they, they developed the mindset that became necessary for the development of science. And I just think it's funny that it happened in a place like that. It just looks so darn religious. I'd love to visit there. So I'm going to come, come toward the close by talking about how you can uh, look up some of this stuff. First of all, this book, this is called For the Glory of God by Rodney Stark. And the subtitle is How Monotheism Led to Reformations, Science, Witch Hunts, and the End of Slavery. Rodney Stark is an incredible writer. He is a very gifted scholar. He is a very entertaining writer. He knows his stuff. At the time he wrote this, he was, uh, where was he working? Um, University of Washington at the time. He is, I think, at Baylor now. He is, uh, it's, this is just an incredibly readable book, and it talks about uh, one chapter in here about the whole story of the kinds of things that we've been talking about. Rodney Stark, For the Glory of God. There's another book, very similar thing. It's in York County Libraries, one of them called The Victory of Reason by the same author, Rodney Stark. Get your, you gotta, if you've got any interest in these kinds of things, you have got to read Stark. If you want to read about another historical myth, that's just a few pages in this one, the late great ape debate about the Scopes trial. If you've read, in, if you've read or seen the movie or play Inherit the Wind, about how the Christians were idiots and the evolutionists were smart, this will tell you what really happened. He's got like 30 or 40 different things in here. He says where this is what the play said. This is the truth. So. And then, if you really want to dig into it, this is my battered issue of Christianity and the Nature of Science by J.P. Moreland. This is a terrific book on the relationship, philosophical relationship between the two. I want to urge you to come back and hear David Heddle next week and Carla Briscoe the following week. David Heddle is a Ph.D. physicist at JLab and at CNU. I've already mentioned him to you. He's, he's a, he gets into these blog. He does the blogging too. That's where I met him when he lived in New Hampshire, and then he moved here. I met him online, and then I met him for real. And he grew up in, in kind of the, uh, the uh, not-so-good parts of Pittsburgh, and he still mixes it up. But he does it for Christianity and for good thinking on science. And he's going to be talking about God and the cosmos. And he's got some very, very good stuff to share. We've got a few minutes left for final comments or reaction. And, um, oh, like I said, you can also look at my blog for part of what I didn't get time to share today, which is about a guy named Sean Carroll who says that science and religion are incompatible because science has disproved everything religions believe. One of the things he said was science has disproved Hindu reincarnation. And what I wrote about that was I don't believe in Hindu reincarnation either, but I do not know of a lab experiment or of a journal article where science has actually covered that topic. Do you? There's a marvelous quote by an astronomer named Robert Jastrow, which I don't have exactly memorized, but he's talking about the beginnings of the universe and the Big Bang. And, he, and basically the thing that really annoyed scientists about the Big Bang theory is that they wanted the universe to... They, they didn't like the, the, the implication that the universe started 
sometime and had, you know, probably had a creator. And at the end of this book about this, he says something to the effect that it's just really distressing to scientists that we have scaled the mountains of ignorance. We're pulling ourselves over the final rock and we're finally there only to be greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries saying, what took you so long? Let me pray for us and then we can go. Father, thank you again for giving us the opportunity to study you. And, and I hope that none of this has implied that we should think less of science because it's part of the way we come to know you. But just to understand the truth of the relationship between science and religion, I think I pray that this is going to be really helpful and strengthening. Pray that you be glorified in all that we do the rest of the day and as we think about these things. In Jesus' name, amen. The preceding material is copyright 2009 by Thomas A. Gilson.